0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: The statement, I am carnal, is the declaration of the continuing death that is within every believer. There can be no triumph unless there is the clear recognition of the aliveness of that old fleshly nature. It is that recognition that should cause every fiber of the new being to be alert to face the potential carnality in order that it may be delivered over to the death which is its proper sentence.
0: a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Paul's Carnality. We tend to think of the Apostle Paul as a mighty man of faith who experienced a life of spiritual victory and powerful service for God. But Paul was quite candid in describing his weaknesses and his internal battle against fleshly desires and indwelling sin. By examining Paul's struggle with his sin and carnal desires, we can find tremendous insight into our own spiritual experience and learn how to honestly and effectively deal with our sin. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verse 14. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Paul's Carnality.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee our Father and our God and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness and ask thee that thou shalt use the scripture which we study today to do its work in our hearts and bring us to the place of joy and triumph in Christ. Bless the word to each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue our studies in the seventh chapter of Romans and come today to Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now it was the coming of the law that awakened Paul to the knowledge of sin, and which aroused all of the latent hatred of his unregenerate nature against true righteousness. Did that mean that the law was evil since it had such an evil effect? Far from it. The law is spiritual. It was Paul who was carnal, sold under sin. Now the law may be called spiritual for several reasons. First of all, it is the law of the living God, and God is spirit. Anything that truly proceeds from God must partake of the attributes of God. It is impossible that the perfect God could have created anything that is not pure and holy and righteous. In passing, we should point out an error which has been circulated as a commentary on these truths. For there has arisen in this 20th century a great heresy which draws a false inference from the true premise which we have set forth. God is good, some have written. And it is evident that since God is good and all that comes from him must be good. Secondly, God created all things. And again, this is truth. And so from these two truths, a false inference is drawn that since God created all things and since God is good, all things are therefore necessarily good, holy, and spiritual, and that any thought that is otherwise than this is what they call an error of mortal mind. Now what the followers of this idea fail to see is that though God is good and God created all things, he gave to Lucifer the right of free will, and then Lucifer lifted this free will against God, who thereupon introduced all of the laws of perfect judgment. The result is that we live in a world that was perfectly good, and through the judgment of God upon the introduction of a second will, became perfectly cursed. Therefore, all things material in the universe are in a state of decomposition, decay, erosion, etc., and all things moral have been perverted and depraved by the fallen spirits which took their stand against God. This sets the stage for another intervention of the perfect God, giving his perfect spiritual law, perfectly condemning sin against that law, and providing the framework for a perfect redemption in Jesus Christ, thus perfectly illustrating all of the perfections of God. Paul then contrasts himself with the law and says the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now in order for us to understand what he means by this, it's necessary for us to look through the scriptures and put together all of the words that are used to describe the nature of man. When God created man, he formed his body out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, ruach, of life and man became a living soul, nephesh. Then the Greek words used to describe the nature of man are several, and the comparison of them can bring us to the realization of what we are and how we may function properly before the Lord. According to the verse in Genesis, using the New Testament words for these parallel things, I have a body, soma, I have a spirit, numa, but I am a soul, Suke. This was the state of Adam before the fall. When sin entered, the spirit fell into the soul like the third story of a bombed building might fall into the second story. From that moment, man was totally incapable of thinking spiritually. There have been some theologians who have been confused by the seeming parallelism of what the Bible teaches about the soul and the spirit. They proclaim what is known as dichotomy, teaching that man has a body and one other part of his being called either soul or spirit. But we read in Hebrews 4.12 that by the word of God, we can pierce even to the division of soul and spirit. So if they may be divided, they are not the same. In the unregenerate man, the soul and spirit are so merged that there is no practical difference. Man thinks spiritually with his soul, and so he thinks wrong on all spiritual matters. Now, unfortunately, there is no adjective in the English language for the noun soul. For the body, we have the adjective bodily. For the spirit, we have the adjective spiritual. But there is no adjective for soul. So we shall adopt the word soulish in order better to understand some scriptures. The Greek tells us that the soulish man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. The King James Version has translated this by the natural man, while the Revised Standard Version says the unspiritual man. It would have been far better if they had had the courage to create a new word that would have translated exactly what the Greek means and to tell us indeed that the soulish man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, when a man is born again, he is born of the spirit. What he receives in the new birth is a new spirit. He becomes, as Peter tells us, he becomes a partaker of the divine nature. The Christian, therefore, is different from the unregenerate man. The latter has a body that is a decaying, dying thing, and that body holds up a nature that is soul and spirit mixed together in a fallen state. Now, the believer likewise has a body that is a decaying, dying thing, holding up a soul that is of the nature of Adam. But the believer also has a new spirit, which is a new creation. In the Christian life, there is a continuing struggle between the new created spirit within the believer and the old nature of Adam, which continues within us. This is described in Galatians the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. The RSV has translated this, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you would. Now, both of these translations print the word spirit with a capital letter thus indicating that the translators believe that this refers to the Holy Spirit. But I'm inclined to believe that it would be better to use the lower case and show that the newly created Spirit which has been given to us in our regeneration is indeed a divine power within us, but a personality distinct from the Holy Spirit, and to which the Holy Spirit bears witness, as we read in Romans 8.16, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Now when the word of God speaks of the unregenerate man, it calls him the soulish man, the man dominated by the old Adam. But when it speaks of the Adamic nature within a man who has received the new spirit in regeneration, it calls him by a different name, the carnal man. It is this word which Paul uses in our text to describe himself. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now the adjective does not come from the word for the body, soma, but a new word is introduced. The adjective that is derived from the noun flesh in the Greek sarx. A careful study of all of the passages in the New Testament in which this noun and its adjective are used will show at once that the word is not used at all in the sense of the meat that is on the body, but that it has to do with the inner nature of the fallen Adam that remains within us after we are saved and all its reactions against the new life which has been created within us to oppose it. Now in English we have two words for many things because of the fact that William the Conqueror brought French to the shores of England where it was in competition with the Anglo-Saxon until the two languages fused to form English. In many instances, we have adopted both the Anglo-Saxon and the French words, and that is the case here. The word flesh is from the Germanic background of our language, while the word carnal is straight from the Latin. They could be used interchangeably throughout the Bible. So Paul states that he is carnal. Now it's in the present tense. I am a carnal. He's not describing his condition in his unregenerate state, If he had been, he would have said, I was soulish. It was after he had been born again that he was forced to say, I am carnal. No longer soulish, but carnal. A moment ago, I quoted the verse in Galatians 5, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, the casual reader might think that the verse was teaching that the presence of the flesh made it impossible for the spirit to live a life of triumph. But I believe, however, that there's a much greater truth hidden here. The RSV corrects a part of the translation, making it read rightly, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what ye would. Now, the King James Version would convey the thought that the force of the flesh is so great that the believer cannot do the things that the spirit would do. The revision approximates much more closely the force of the original Greek, that the power of the new spirit of life in Christ Jesus is great in order that ye may not do the things that your flesh wants to do. It's the statement of the principle of victory and not the statement of the principle of defeat. The Christian is called upon to live a supernatural life, but the power to live that supernatural life has been given to him. The statement, I am a carnal, is the announcement by Paul of the downward pull of the Adamic nature that is within every believer. Now this precedes the description of the threshing movements of the man who is sinking, which in turn precedes the description of the triumph of the sinking man who is lifted and allowed to walk serenely on the surface of the water. The statement, I am carnal, is the declaration of the continuing death that is within every believer. There can be no triumph unless there is the clear recognition of the aliveness of that old fleshly nature. It is that recognition that should cause every fiber of the new being to be alert, to face the potential carnality in order that it may be delivered over to the death, which is its proper sentence. The attitude is that which I saw in some missionary friends under very peculiar circumstances. I was traveling in southeastern Asia in the middle of what we would call winter. Early in January, I reached a certain town and after having seen some of the mission works there in the morning, I was taken to the home of certain missionary friends where I had lunch. The thermometer stood over a hundred, and it's the custom to sleep for an hour or so in the early afternoon during the period of greatest heat. The friends took me into their guest room and apologized for the presence of a large packing case that was filled with paper boxes and Christmas package wrappings. They said that the case had arrived from America with all of the presents for themselves and their children, and that it had come several days late. They had opened the presents and had put all of the boxes and wrappings and ribbons in the case to sort out later. I went to sleep in the room, but I was awakened by the noise of rustling. There was something in the packing case that was stirring the papers that were in it. I dozed off, and after a while I was awakened again by the loud rustling of the papers. Siesta time was over, and I went into the main room of the house, and I told them of the noise in the packing case. Instantly, the whole atmosphere was vividly tense. There was a quick call for the servants who came running to the door and who stood looking at the box with wary eyes. The talk between missionaries and servants had lapsed into the native language, which I did not understand, but the air of excitement needed no translation. A rake was hooked over the top of the case, and it was pulled into the living room and then to the door and out onto the porch. It was then lowered, still being pulled from a distance to the ground level of the yard. By this time, there were a dozen servants who had come running from neighboring houses. Each one was possessed of a club, an axe, or a hoe. Finally, in the midst of the greatest excitement, the case was turned on its side and out slithered a cobra about seven feet long. It was quickly clubbed to death while the servants carefully prodded the remaining litter to see if the deadly serpent had a mate. The excitement among the natives continued unabetted for more than an hour. They rummaged every part of the room, including the bedclothes of the bed on which I had just been sleeping, and they looked for holes through which the snake might have come, and for evidences that it might have been accompanied by a mate. The missionaries served tea, but the conversation was all about snakes. And I was told that I could add this experience to the many others I had shared with missionaries the world over to give me a full picture of the life which some of them live. Now the point that I underline from this story is the tense attitude of awareness of danger that pervaded every man, woman, and child in the group, both missionaries and natives. They knew that something alive and very dangerous was there and they did not lower their guard for the fraction of a second. There was no politeness toward a guest that would turn their attention away from the peril. There was no thought of postponement of dealing with the danger that was there. They knew that there was death in the packing case and that it had to be dealt with immediately. Now, can I quote this verse from Paul's lips and convey this same attitude of peril, of danger, of death? I am carnal, sold under sin. It's said with a hint of desperation. It's the sounding of the toxin, the ringing of the alarm, the announcement of danger and peril and death. But there is another word that is used to describe the believer in Christ, which must be put into the record at this point. We're going to see that it is possible to overcome the carnality in the human nature. The rest of the studies in this chapter, which we shall continue, the Lord willing, in the coming weeks, will show the absolute triumph that is ours over what I might call the snake in the box, the carnality in our heart. But Paul now uses this word carnal in another epistle to describe a low state of Christian living as opposed to a higher state of living. He opposes the carnal Christian to the spiritual believer. At the end of the second chapter of First Corinthians and the beginning of the following chapter, we have the divisions summarized. The soulish man does not receive the things of the spirit, nor can he understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man discerns all things, though he himself is discerned of no man. But, says Paul to the Corinthians, I could not address you as spiritual men, but as fleshly men, carnal men, babes in Christ. It must be noted that they are called brethren, and that they are said to be, In Christ, beyond question, they were regenerate, born again. For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, even though he is no more than a babe in Christ. Paul points out that they had in them traits that were being exhibited in such a way that their lives were like the lives of unsaved men. And this coincides with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that some of his wheat looked so much like tares that even apostles could not tell the difference between the two. But, says someone, Paul calls himself carnal in our text. Wasn't he a spiritual man? Now, there have been commentators who've tried to protect Paul by saying that he was talking about an early phase in his life when he was carnal, but that now he was spiritual, looking back over his past and describing it as it was from the vantage point of his spiritual triumph. But let's face it in our text he uses the present tense i am carnal he does not say i was carnal i believe that the answer is to be found in the way a truly spiritual man must look at himself and his life no matter what the stage of his development i know that i personally i would like to say that i am a spiritual man but i know enough about the bible and about myself in the light of the bible to turn away from any such verdict about myself. I can see some signs of growth within myself, but I know that in some fields where I once knew defeat, I now know victory. But I discover a law within my members that when I wish to do good, evil is still present with me. I have discovered the principle of victory and triumph in Christ as I believe that Paul had discovered it. But I would never dare to call myself spiritual, even as there is no record in the New Testament that Paul called himself spiritual. He calls other men spiritual, but he will not use the term for himself. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, he that is spiritual discerneth all things. But he will go on to say that he will judge nothing before the time. He will not even judge himself. He also addresses some of the believers in the Galatian church as being spiritual. He writes, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now it's evident then that the state of being a carnal believer is one that can be left for the state of being a spiritual believer. It is possible to be delivered from the carnal state but it would appear that only a carnal man would call himself spiritual. A carnal man could be honest enough to call himself carnal. He could be hypocritical enough or ignorant enough to call himself spiritual. A spiritual man could know himself so well that he would call himself carnal, while it would appear that he would not dare to call himself spiritual. Now it's in this light that I believe Paul calls himself carnal while we, looking at him, would call him spiritual. Perhaps the best state of mind for any Christian to hold is the awareness of those who know that there is a poisonous serpent in the packing case and aware of the danger and peril that exist because of its presence and say with Paul, not that I have already attained or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brethren, I count not myself to have arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which lie ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Lord willing, we'll take it up from this point in our next study to see more of triumph and victory. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bless this truth to each heart. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Our problem lies not with the perfect law of God, but with our sin and utter inability to obey it. We can thank God that our bondage to sin has been broken by the saving power of Jesus Christ. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Paul's Carnality. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet, by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at Alliancenet.org An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll free 1-800-488-1888 Again request Paul's Carnality or simply ask for message number R7-14 We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Why and How to Study the Bible. Christians have many excuses for why their Bibles never find their way off the bookshelf. I don't have enough time. Scripture is too hard to understand. I just don't know where to begin. This free booklet explains why Bible study is so important and how to dig into the Scriptures in a way that will make them come alive. You can enjoy a lifetime of fruitful study and application of God's Word. Ask for your free copy of Why and How to Study the Bible When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. For more information or to make a contribution to support or further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Or call us toll free, 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org.